Turn with me in your Bible. Oh, let me see here. Let's go to 1 Samuel. I'm excited for tonight's service. We're going to lay hands on people here in a few minutes. I don't know how long a prayer line will take. I don't want to teach for too long, but you know me, that could be a lie. That's just how it works. <laughs> He's sticking your lane, and mine's a teaching lane, so that's the default setting for me. And uh, yeah, you just stick in that lane. I'll see how brief I can cut this, because if we lay hands on everybody, that could take a solid hour. And the more people come to our church, th that hour gets longer. <laughs> I want to, uh, I'm going to lay hands tonight on people. Uh, we've just come from Dr. Barclay's Holy Spirit Conference, and so our custom has been, since I've joined with Dr. Barclay 15 years ago, uh, that anytime we return and he'd laid hands on us or use us to lay hands on people, we'd come back and lay hands on the church. So we're going to do that tonight. You don't have to get in that prayer line if you don't want to. We have no general specific um, flavor for that altar call. We're just going to lay hands on you and let the anointing of God do what it wants to do. But what I want to teach on tonight to encourage you and build your faith is I'm going to talk about a few things the anointing of God does, and I'm sure we'll hit something in that list that you need, and that way you can set your faith that when hands are laid on you, the anointing of God goes into you and makes that thing work. One of, one of the mistakes we make as Pentecostals is we like to come up, have hands laid on us. That's great. The anointing of God goes into us. That's great. Sometimes we fall down. That's great. And then we get up and nothing. And, and we don't fake falling down in this church. I don't care if you fall down or not. Uh, but sometimes the power of God does honestly knock you down. And you just can't stand under it. It's just too powerful. And we see an example of that in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus. And uh, he said, whom do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he just said, I am. <laughs> King James adds he, but I am. And it says, and they all went back as dead. Now, all means 600 plus men. Can you imagine that we maybe have like 120 in here tonight? Can you imagine five times that? And now just, just me, if I just said I am or Jesus and all 600 people fall down. Just at a word spoken. That's great. Those men got up. Were they any different? And you can fall down. The power of God's evident and manifest. But are you any different? That's the key. That's why I learned a long time ago. Actually, the Lord dealt with me in a healing line. I was laying hands on people. It was the early years, and I was trying to convince you guys that I knew what I was doing, though I probably didn't. But I wanted you to think I did. That's part of leadership, right? You, he knows what he's doing. And he's like, well, maybe I don't. But let's go this way. We'll discover it together. That was a healing line, and the power of God was there, but nobody was falling. And I was working from this side here. Actually, it's before we remodeled this, so I was up on this step. And nobody was falling down. And my heart got irritated. And about the fifth or sixth person, the Lord asked me real gently, do you want people to fall down or do you want them to get healed? Fair enough. Okay, I don't care if they fall down or not. I do just want them healed. Uh, we're okay if we fall down. That's why we have catchers. But ultimately, we can fall down, shake, tremble, jerk, and get up and go home the same. So what I want us to try to do going forward even more is set our faith that when the anointing of God goes into us, we're mixing it with our faith. And we wake up tomorrow and say, hey, no hands were laid on me. The power of God came upon me, and I'm going to harness that anointing. Like with the grateful leper, they went, and as they went, they were healed. The man of the pool, Siloam, he went, and as he washed, and he was healed. 
Some of these miracles that the Lord did, they weren't all instantaneous. Some of them, even he says in Mark 16, they shall recover. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Recover is not spontaneous. It's a recovery. So what we've got to do is be mindful that when the anointing hits us, we mix it with faith and we continue to speak to it. We continue to harness that energy for something rather than let it drain out. You know, a battery, most batteries, if you let them sit, they will lose their charge. And sometimes we're, we're that human battery full of the power of God and we don't do anything with it. It loses that charge. So I want to talk about a few things. We'll look at just a few verses about what the anointing of God does. To clarify it, the anointing of God is the presence of God. This gets into Trinitarian theology. It's wonderful. Like it. Want more of it. We need to have it. Working on my next book already called More Than a Stained Glass Dove. Going to interview a former Calvinist cessationist who I'm kind of friends with. He's out at Pastor Kerry's church now. He came out of the cessationism, Calvinism, that, that don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, they do on paper. And that's what I call Trinitarian, uh, theoretical Trinitarianism. And uh, some, not all, not, there are tongue-talking Calvinists, so, and, and that's fine. But there are, the, there are some that are such hardcore cessationists, they will fight and, and crucify people sometimes verbally if they don't have their Trinitarian theology watertight. Yet they themselves in their services don't have a trinity. They don't have the Holy Spirit. But they know the construct of the trinity like the back of their hand. They just don't know the person of the Holy Spirit. So tell me which is the better, to have watertight theology or actually have the Holy Spirit in your service? I do have a dear friend who is a oneness Pentecostal. Oneness Pentecostals don't believe in the trinity. They believe in something which basically is called modalism. They say one God, three forms. That's modalism, a God in three different modes. A staunch Trinitarian will call that a heresy. And some back in the day, they would, they would kill Christians over that. Modalism. But he's a Pentecostal. So guess who shows up in his service every service? The person of the Holy Spirit. So I've had debates, uh, not debates. We don't even debate. We just discuss it. I said, all right, because we just recently did this. I said, so I would say one God, three persons. What do you say? He said, one God, three modes, three forms. I said, all right, but do you recognize that they're three different people? Yeah, but we call it three different forms. I said, so, so then at the Lord's baptism, you have Jesus in the person, the Father in the heaven saying, behold, my son, in whom I will please, behold, and then the Holy Spirit. Yeah, one God, three forms. I said, okay, that makes you a heretic by some standards. He said, I don't really care. We just get people saved and spirit-filled and healed. <laughs> or you can be such a harsh cessationist. You have watertight Trinitarian theori the theoretical theology and no Holy Spirit in your service. So all right, just throw that out there because that will probably come out in my new book whenever that comes out. Got to help the cessationists because they've like crucified the third member of the Godhead trying to defend him. So when you talk about the anointing of God, you're dealing with the presence of God. And the Bible calls it in the New Testament the Spirit of Christ, but Christ is the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and, but it's still the presence of God. And God the Father is, his, is, a, is a spirit, so when his presence shows up, it's God. And yet there's a distinction in the presence of God Almighty. There's a distinction in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a distinction in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Most of what we deal with in the earth is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so when we see about the Spirit of God coming on people, we're dealing with the Holy Spirit. And when we lay hands on people, we're manifesting the presence of the Holy Spirit. When we use the term anointing, we're talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. King James uses the term virtue 
when virtue would depart from the body of the Lord Jesus. It's translated, the Greek word is dunamis or miraculous power. It's still the power of the Holy Spirit. The other thing we've got to keep in mind before we proceed here with some scriptures is if the Holy Spirit is present in our life, and he is, but we're not speaking the word of God, the Holy Spirit is kind of rendered idle. And we see that allegory, that principle in Genesis where the Spirit of God hovered over the faces of the deep in a chaotic world called Earth who was coming out of judgment in Genesis 1. And the, the implication is the Holy Spirit would have kept hovering and kept hovering and kept hovering. Darkness covered the face of the deep. And darkness was like a, sw- a thick swaddling band for the waters over the face of the earth. And the Holy Spirit hovered and nothing. If we stopped there, didn't read the next verse, nothing. Perpetual hovering. This is really kind of terrifying because it kind of explains our life. Maybe there's a darkness on our life. Maybe there's a thick swaddling band of chaos on our life. And yet we're born again. And God's spirit is within us. And we're children of the most high God, but things aren't changing. But the next verse, I believe verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God said, And it let the Holy Spirit go into motion. So when we lay hands on people tonight, you got to start saying something about it. I received the anointing for wisdom. I received the anointing for healing. I received the anointing for deliverance. I received the anointing. It went in me. you got to give words and voice to it because it's how the Bible reveals to us this kingdom works. The creation operates on laws. We see it reflected in natural science. And if you can learn those natural laws and you can harness it for your betterment or you can be ignorant of it and still suffer. So here in 1 Samuel 10, I want to look at a verse real quick. We're not going to go too in depth on any of these. I just want to look at a few examples of the Holy Spirit moving in people's lives and what it accomplished. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, this is talking about the young king Saul, God gave Saul another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him. And the prophet Samuel said this would happen. You'll meet a group of prophets and the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you'll prophesy. So he meets this group of prophets, this company of prophets, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, what is this that is coming to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And so one of the things I want us to look at here as an example is the spirit of God can come upon you and use you differently. Now, Saul was not a prophet and he never prophesied like that really again. He was a king. He had just been anointed to be king. But I think, as I consider this now, Samuel probably had to forewarn him, this is going to happen. You'll meet some prophets. The Spirit of God will come upon you, and you'll prophesy among them. I think he told him that so he wouldn't think he was a prophet. You're going to meet prophets. You'll prophesy, as if to say, but you're not one, so don't try to be something you're not. And that's probably a useful lesson to any one of us. Just because the Spirit of God uses us once, in an area doesn't mean that's our calling. It doesn't mean that's our gifting. 
Just because we get used once to lead praise and worship doesn't mean that's our gifting. Just because we get used once to uh, preach a message doesn't mean we're called to be a sermon giver all of our life or a pastor or a preacher. We've got to be able to recognize when the Spirit of God comes upon us in a special season and supernaturally empowers us. Now, and as, uh, as Moses said, would to God all of God's people would prophesy. Would to God the Spirit of God would come upon all of God's people. And he will at times. But just because he comes upon you once or twice at a season doesn't make you something you dream to be. We have to distinguish between dreams and callings. We've got to make a big distinction between dreams and callings. Fancies, we taught that I think last Sunday, and callings. So here's an example of the Spirit of God coming upon him. And he does something. He, he empowers him to prophesy. He doesn't heal him. He doesn't deliver him from demon power. He doesn't grant him wisdom. He doesn't make him a prophet. He just supernaturally uses him to prophesy. And honestly, if you were to study the Hebrew word for prophecy, it just means to bubble forth. That's all it means. That's why the prophets of Baal could prophesy. They would bubble forth. And the implication is the Spirit of God came upon him so strongly, he just bubbled forth and declared great things. And we all should be able to do that. But I want you to see here, the power of God came upon Saul. He was running with men anointed of God to be genuine prophets. And all of a sudden, he's prophesying just like them. It shows you the power of fellowship and association. It also shows you to be careful if you get among people that you are not, that you may all of a sudden want to be like them, but you're not called to be like them. If I ran with a bunch of business dealers, businessmen, I might all of a sudden start being like, I need to make more money. I need to get, how many, honey, how much money we got in savings? I need to get in on this. If you run, if you run with business people, you may want to become business minded. If you run with, I don't know, run with doctors, all of a sudden you want to start giving people shots or something. Or, you, know, you run with sports people, all of a sudden you want to be in better shape. You really have to be mindful of who you're around. If I sit down with a bunch of missionaries at a missionary table at coffee, I start feeling like I'm backslidden. Because here they are blowing and going through 15 nations every six weeks. And I'm like, I haven't been overseas since COVID hit. I've been overseas now once. But if I'm not careful, I get around missionaries and it starts to make me want to be something I'm not supposed to be. You've got to be mature enough to know your lane. And like Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I know my lane. I know my flavor. I know what I'm supposed to be. Stick with it. Dr. Barclay said something in conference this week. He said, when you know what you're not, just as helpful as knowing what you are. I'm not called to be a full-time missionary, and I'm not called to be a full-time missionary pastor. Missionary work is my hobby. It's like my, it's my kingdom side hobby. If I get to go, great. If not, eh, I got plenty of you guys to deal with. So we'll stay here. You're my mission field. Some of you hail from Baxter. That's missionary work. And those that don't are coming from Sparta. Oh, I'm from Cookville. Not you originally, you're not. You're from Michigan. I got very few pure-blooded people in this church. You guys are from the Dakotas, don't you know? And still working on tuna casserole, eh? Yeah. <laughs> so the Spirit of God can come upon you. And, and honestly, we see it sometimes. We lay hands on people in a prayer line, and they begin to shout and prophesy the simple gift of prophecy. Oh, Lord, you're good. Oh, God, I give you glory. Oh, Lord, you're good. Didn't happen before we touched them because the power of God came on them. That doesn't make them a prophet. It makes them so full of the presence of God. They're bubbling forth and edifying and exhorting and encouraging. And, and that, that, we've all been in those services where you see that sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so start to do that, and everybody else gets excited like, well, yeah, 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 get on me, get on me. It can change the whole course of a service. 
Go to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 13. Let's look at another example of what the Spirit of God can do. 2 Kings chapter 13. This is a fun story. I'll give my conjecture on part of it in a minute. Verse 20. And Elisha died. Now he's the prophet that was anointed with twice the anointing of Elijah. Did twice as many miracles. Was a faithful servant to his master Elisha and to Elisha's departure. But he died and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. Now, now who's burying what? A Moabite. Are those the friends of Israel or the enemies? Those are the enemies of Israel. They're trying to hastily bury a guy, but they see some bad guys, other bad guys coming. And they cast this dead man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now that, like what? That's not even a Jew. That's not even a Hebrew. That's the bad guy. Now the question then becomes, uh, why didn't they do this again and again and again and again and again and again and again? I mean, like, why isn't there a line? Bring grandma. Whoop. There you go. You got an uncle? Bring him. Whoop. There you go. Bring your mother-in-law? No, 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 no. We're going to keep her. Now we're good. That was an answer to prayer. Don't want to unanswer my prayer. Let's see if it works on goats. You got a dead goat? Whoop. Man. There you go. So my, my conjecture is, because the anointing of God does wane, because the anointing of God does lift, because like Moses' face didn't shine forever, that my, my conjecture here is that there was enough anointing left in the residual of Elijah's bones for a one shot. That's my interpretation here. Because if it's working once, why not do this again? Why not let this be your forward operating base against your bad guys and anytime a soldier dies, just drag them back here. Whoop! and replacement troops, right? So my thought is really, because I know how the anointing of God works. It lifts, it dissipates. It, it only stays for so long because it's just the nature of the anointing of God. The Lord said, my spirit will not always strive. At some point, it, it, it lifts. Even in a service, the anointing ebbs and flows. The face of Moses ebbed and flowed. Jesus was transfigured, and then he was no longer transfigured. You see the parallel of it in the symbolism of incense in the Old Testament. That aroma is strongest when it's first burned, just like your cologne or your perfume, and then it begins to dissipate. There's always enough of a residual. If you walk into your clothing or your closet and you smell your clothing, you can smell that, that faint aroma from cologne from three days ago. Sometimes you can smell stuff from 10 years ago, and you say, yep, smells like granny. But it doesn't always, I mean, it doesn't last. So... I, I, what I want us to see is there was enough of an anointing in this twice anointed man, Elijah, who had twice the anointing of the prophet Elijah to raise one man from the dead. And that's why I believe they didn't line them up and do this again and again and again. But one of the things it does teach us is that the power of God resurrects things. The power of God resurrects things. So maybe tonight when we have this altar call to lay hands on people, you need something resurrected. Now this can be healing, but we've got other examples for healing. The power of God 
flows. It, it is, as the New Testament calls it, living water. My early experiences with the anointing of God as a 19 and 20-year-old, to me, it felt like electricity. It feels like, and it's how it operates. It goes from a high potential to a low potential. It goes from whoever's got the anointing to someone who needs it, and it transfers. And now that I've laid hands on people for 20, 25 years, I totally understand it. It gets on me, and I lay hands on people, and it discharges into them. And then I have to step back and let it build back up. And that sounds really weird, but I've operated under it enough. I take times in between people because it has to sometimes recharge to discharge. So I remember being a really stupid kid in college and uh, going, electricity, it's like electricity. Why in the world do they call it living water in the Bible? And then I went, oh, they didn't have electricity. Oh, man, I'm an idiot. But if you think about electricity, electricity works just like living water. Water flows from a high potential to a low potential. It's moving. It's alive. And so in all these examples, we see the Spirit of God come upon Paul, uh, Saul. A high potential hits a low potential, makes it like him. He begins to prophesy. Here you have this life in these bones, comes upon a dead man, jump starts his life. That's why when we get in a prayer line, the, we're going to say the power of God flows in me. The life-giving power of God flows into me, brings me the life that I need. So here we see the anointing resurrects the dead. Isaiah chapter 10. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 10. Famous verse. A lot of people like this verse. It's worth knowing. In the early years of pastoring, we had a lot of very, very supernatural Sunday night services. And I, I look back and I think it was because the Lord wanted to confirm me in the eyes of the older people who didn't know if this 31-year-old kid, because I was 31 when I took over the church, that if this 31-year-old kid knew what he was doing. So we had, for two years or so, maybe three years, we had some of the wildest, strongest anointings um, of my life. But consequently, I would go home and it would still be on me. And I would lay down in bed next to Amanda, and because she's a human being, it would discharge. Now, this sounds weird, but it would discharge off of me into her and keep me awake. Remember that? And most Sunday nights, like the first year or two, I couldn't go to bed with her on Sunday nights. I'd go sleep in the other room because I couldn't get any sleep because it would constantly leave me and minister to her because she's laying next to me and the anointing is still on me from the service. And that's why then I learned, let's get back up here. You guys need this because I don't want to go home with this. I, I got to go to the zinc mine tomorrow. I got to get up at 530 and I'm not going to stay up till one o'clock vibrating under the power of God. So we just lay hands on people, try to get it off, get it off me, get it off me, get it off me, get it off me. <laughs> I got to get some sleep tonight. You need some and you need some. You need like three portions. Go, go, go. Because it really is like energy. And uh, I think the Lord let me experience that to understand more how it works. <laughs> you lay next to your wife. I'm ready to go to bed. I'm exhausted. And you just feel your body vibrating and you feel it moving into her. She's asleep. Like, this isn't fair. How come she can sleep through this and I don't get to sleep? <laughs> so I go sleep in the guest room. Isaiah 10, verse 27, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now, this is also talking about the Assyrian yoke and the Egyptian yoke. This is the prophecy about the coming slavery Israel was going to deal with because they were not going to repent. This is prophesied 100 years in advance. 
And he says, look, you're going to be enslaved, but the anointing will destroy the yoke. So we take it out of context, and that's fine, but it does reveal what the anointing does. One of the many aspects of the anointing or the presence of God is to destroy yokes of bondage, whatever that may be. And now it may be the anointing of God simply goes into you to help you continue to break that yoke off you. There are times the anointing hits you and that yoke is broken. You don't even know you needed that yoke broken. But even if you are mindful of that yoke and you're believing God and confessing the word and disciplining your flesh to get that yoke broken, the anointing goes into you to help you break it further. Sometimes it completely breaks it off of you. Um, we did, I guess the key is you don't quit. You get, I'm, I'm not of the old school mindset that says, well, you know, if you've been prayed for once, if you get prayed for a second time, you weren't in faith the first time. I think that's malarkey. I think it's malarkey being someone who's pastored. That kind of stuff typically came from word of faith evangelists. But being a scrapper and a fighter and someone who's had to deal with a lot of stuff, my mindset is just keep getting in prayer lines and getting another dose of the anointing. Just keep getting in prayer lines, getting another dose of the anointing. Just keep getting in prayer lines and scrapping. And as long as you're praying and speaking and declaring the word in between services, just keep getting in prayer lines and scrapping. Get in every prayer line. Get in every opportunity you can. I don't like that. It's, 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 a, it's a false spirituality. Well, I was prayed for once in 78, and I was in faith then, and I'm in faith now. I'm like, well, yeah, but you aren't any different, so you should probably get another prayer line. It became kind of this pious walk. I don't need prayer. I was prayed for once, and I was in faith, and I still believe I received. Well, you ain't got it yet. So how about get a little bit of help? Just get a little bit of help. But the anointing does destroy the yoke, whatever that yoke is. Depression, offense, lust, addiction, you name it, it'll break it. Fear. Uh, Dr. Barclay just told this story. I'd heard part of it before. Didn't hear all the details. He talked about some years ago, he was in a conference, and he said this great big old fat lady came walking down the aisle over here. And he said he thought she was coming down to find a seat, but she didn't stop. And he was getting a little nervous because he said she's huge. He said, like, big. He said, <laughs> actually, I can tell I'm too much like this younger generation because I was actually getting a little offended by how much he was making fun of fat people. But I thought he's old school and I want to be old school. So this woman was big. He said it took her a while to get all of her gears going. Yeah, see? because we can't fat shame anymore. That aside, he said, so he's worried because she just doesn't stop. She just keeps coming. And he said, the Lord spoke to him and said, he's like, Lord, what am I going to do? And the Lord said, would you just let me do what I want to do? And so he stops his preaching and turns to this woman and she said, he says, can I help you in the middle of the sermon? And she says, I need prayer. I can't stop this. I'm bound. I can't lose weight. I don't want to be this fat anymore. And so he laid hands on her and prophesied and said, the Lord is going to supernaturally speed up your metabolism and you are going to lose weight. And so she fell out. He said, she fell out. Him, her, six ushers and three chairs. That's what he said. That must have been some anointing to go bowling like that. You knock down six ushers and three chairs. So he said, two months later, they get a call at the ministry and uh, his secretary says, I think you want to take this phone call. So he says, all right. So this lady calls, it's her. 
and she says, um, this is the lady, the fat lady you prayed for. Could I come testify at your church? I think it would really bless your people. And he says, well, you know, I don't know. She said, 60 days. I've lost 260 pounds. And I can't turn it off. So Nick did. We were at Starbucks yesterday morning driving in the snow. Nick's, Nick needs some social cue training. We're at Starbucks at this like grocery store in Grand Rapids. And the barista is a big girl. And then Nick starts talking about how much that fat girl had to burn every day. And I'm like, what are you doing? Shut up. He's like, yeah. So he's like, he's cranking out the numbers. He's like, see, a pound is 3,500 calories. And she lost 260 pounds in 60 days. Man, that's a lot. She was fat. And like, she was burning. He's like, she was burning 19,000 calories a day, pastor. And I'm like, this girl's going to spit in our egg sandwich. This girl's going to spit in our lattes. So then I got to like cut up with the girl to let her know, forgive my retarded friend here. So she had all these pins on her hat. I was like, oh, look at all those pins. Wow. Wow. You've been to Ron John. Which one? Cocoa Beach. Daytona. Went to Cocoa Beach. I'm just trying to make her feel important because Nick. And at some point, Nick said, oh, it dawned on him. Like he wasn't even discreet. He said it really hadn't to do with anything with, with her weight. He said, I just saw the calorie thing on the sandwiches or something. And it got me thinking. I was like, yeah, and you have to talk loud in front of the big girl. So maybe I'm part of the new generation. I am mindful of people's feelings. So this woman lost 260 pounds in 60 days, 19,100 calories a day on top of what she was eating to lose that much weight. And she said, can you turn it off? Can, I can't, it doesn't stop. And so they came, she came, they had her testify. She had a t-shirt that she used to wear and they unrolled it. It was, he said, pastor, this lady and miss Vicky. And the t-shirt was wider than the three of them. That's an anointing destroying a yoke called. I don't, I don't know even what to call that. Never heard a testimony like that before. Would to God, we could see that again to help people. And he said, this is back in the early days. So this is maybe 30 years ago, 35 years ago, but that's an anointing to destroy a yoke. That might've been a yoke of food addiction or a yoke of maybe some kind of chemical imbalance, some kind of genetic thing, but what a wonderful testimony. Doctor, she said, can you turn off Dr. Barkley? I said, if I could figure out how to turn it on, I would market this. <laughs> it was God lady. It was just God. So this is a good verse to plead. Father, I thank you for the anointing. And when it goes into me, it destroys yokes off of my life. That yoke can be a mindset, can be a little man mindset, can be a lack of social cues like Nick has. You name it. If you're bound to it, the anointing wants to set you free from it. Yeah, we're not going out to eat with Nick anymore. So the anointing destroys bad social cues and other burdens. Go to Acts. Actually, go to Mark chapter 5. <laughs> Just a few more verses and we're going to lay hands on people. So the anointing will use you supernaturally. The anointing uh, can resurrect things. The anointing will destroy burdens. Mark chapter 5, verse... Uh, let's see where we want to start here. Verse 25. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years. That's a tenacious woman. Wanting, not going to cope. Not going to be satisfied. The older I get the shorter 12 years feels. 
Doesn't feel that way to you, Miss Mama Eva. 12 years doesn't feel very long to me anymore. And when you're younger, 12 years feels like half your life because it probably is. When you're like Amy's age, 12 years is like a month. Uh, I'm 46. 12 years doesn't feel that long to me. But this lady's tenacious. She's not going to take no for an answer. And her sickness is not something she wants to cope with. She'd suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, because remember, there's a great crowd thronging him. She came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Now, we don't know what that issue is. Was she... Did she have hemorrhaging issues? Was it lady bleeding issues? We don't know. It was just an issue of blood. But obviously it was, it was a plague and it was costing her and she was suffering. And she was a tenacious lady. And that's something we ought to take away from the story. She's not going to roll over and take it. She's not going to roll over and use it as an excuse. She, she hates this thing. She's willing to bankrupt herself to be better of it. And now... Perhaps she's a Jew, perhaps not. She violates the law of Moses to be out in the public with this thing and to touch the rabbi. And if she's working her way through the press, she's touching a lot of other people, making them unclean too. She don't care. She wants healing. She's healed of her plague, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of his body, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? It's interesting, he could tell that it was a touch on the clothing, not just a touch on the arm, a touch on the ankle, a touch on clothing. And not to be woo-woo spooky, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the spirit realm when you're laying hands on people. You can tell the instant it releases and goes into people. You can tell how it's about to minister to them. Many times you can tell how they're about to respond. They're going to dance. They're going to fall down. They're going to cry. Here comes a demon I've just stirred up from the depths of their soul. There's a lot of different things you can tell just by being in the spirit with it. I don't know if I could ever say I felt it leave my clothing, but then again, I'm not Jesus. He wants to know who touched my clothes. And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging me, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see that had done, her that done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, a lot of things we can extract from this story. Number one, there's a multitude thronging him. Nobody's getting anything. Kind of like this, this morning with the story of the Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. Knew so much, had Jesus in the midst, nothing changing. We can lay hands on people and nothing changes. The anointing of God can be present and nothing changes. We've got to make sure that we're mixing any touch of God with faith. They're touching Jesus, but nothing's changing. She doesn't fall down. So I also think sometimes the falling down becomes a bad Pentecostal cultural habit because it makes you look spiritual. Well, if I fall down big and loud, everybody thinks I really got touched. Well, if you really got touched, you ought to be more than just touched in the head. Here she's able to touch, receive a miracle, and doesn't lay there on the floor and go, she touched and was ready to kind of retreat. No big shebang, no big shamwow. She just knows she's healed. 
And Jesus knows the power of God just left him. And it, it further affirms that we don't have to fall down to receive what we need to receive. We just need faith. And the Lord said, hey, your faith has made thee whole. But her faith drew that anointing. He called it dunamis or virtue. He said, I know virtue has left me. The other verses, he says as much. No, somebody touched me because I felt virtue leave me. How come nobody else's touch pulled on that? Because they were just thronging religiously. They weren't activating through faith. And so here we see that anointing heals sickness. We could call that a yoke of bondage. In fact, Jesus said as much in Luke's gospel, says, ought not this woman who Satan has bound low these 18 years be free? She was bound over with a spirit of infirmity. And so healing, uh, the anointing will bring about a healing. So maybe when we lay hands on people here in a minute, that's what you need. So you just appropriate that. Because I don't have a specific call for anything. We're just going to lay hands on people for what they have need of. Acts chapter 5, let's go there. Here we see an example of Jesus being touched and the anointing being released. But we have a different example in Acts chapter 5. One that often the cessationists struggle with because they don't understand the anointing at all. I would, I would rather have bad Trinitarian theology but have God show up than have watertight Trinitarian theology and no God. You don't, it's funny to me how many people struggle with the interpretation of this passage, but it shows that there's no uh, demonstration or application of it in their life. When you operate under the anointing, when you have the presence of God in your worship services, you totally get what Acts chapter 5 is about to say. You totally understand what the shadow of Peter meant. It's an indication of proximity. There's no miracle power in a shadow. Because if that's the case, just line them up on one side of the street. Unless you have surrounding lights, you only have a shadow in one direction. <laughs> so, sorry, the miracle's in the shadow. You guys on the southern side of the street, you get nothing. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, plural, and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least, now that means sometimes he was laying hands on people, but at the very least, just let him get close enough, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. They couldn't often get close enough to Peter to be touched, but at the very least his shadow was able to be in proximity. That's the whole indication there. It's the proximity. Streets, you know, I don't think every street was running the same direction. We're only doing east-west streets because that allows maximum reach of shadows. I mean, so I, it's fun to watch on the blogs and godanswers.com to watch them try to interpret this. But it also lets you know they have very little understanding of the, the physics of the anointing of God because it does operate like physics. There's a way to manifest it. There's a way to increase it. There's a way to quench it. There's a way to tap into it. There's a way to release it. There's a way to quench it. There's a way to grieve it. This is like physics. There are rules and laws. And once you understand them and become fluent in it, you can just about have it any service you want and believe God to get it almost any way you want it if you're willing to make the sacrifice. So we see the proximity here. There's an anointing strong enough that if Peter's just close enough, 
And uh, Israel's about, what, the 30th parallel. So it's not like it's the 45th or the 50th. We have really long shadows. So, but there's still a moderate shadow. It's, it's in indicating how strong the anointing of God is. Many of you have experienced that in prayer lines. You can tell when the minister is getting closer to you. Right? That's the Peter effect. You can tell. You don't have to open your eyes like, oh, oh, here it comes. Because the anointing of God is tangibly manifest on the minister for that healing line. Wasn't that way for the ministry of the word. That's a different anointing. But now we said, let's lay hands on the sick. And the power of God is there to do that. And you can feel it. Sometimes it's even stronger as he approaches than when he actually lays hands on you. And I don't know the explanation for that, except that maybe your body's acclimating to it, and it's been radiating off the minister. And now that you're there, you're under it. It's been ministering to you by the time you, they get to you. But we see an example of both unclean spirits and sicknesses being driven out of people. So one of the things I like about the anointing when it comes to casting out demons, it really is a matter of the power of God coming upon a person and stirring up that second entity, the alien entity that's in them. And it's, it's like uh, when I was a kid, of course, my dad had me cut in the grass at like four years old because we were proper Southerners. I wasn't raised to be daddy's prince. I was raised to be a work mule. I was probably, I was riding the lawnmower before I was 10. So I, I remember riding the riding lawnmower around the back corner of the house, and I came across some ground wasps. And I didn't know there was such a thing. They, they make a nest in the ground. So, of course, you jump off the lawnmower and you run as fast as you can, and thankfully the lawnmower has a trigger release and it stops right where the wasps are. Once that all settled down, I had to go get Dad. Dad, Dad, Dad. I probably got yelled at. No, never mind. I'm being stung to death. Anyway. No, he didn't get mad at me. I remember this event very clear. So he said, let it all die down. We'll come back with some gasoline. And so he showed me. We found the hole again. That's where they were. One of them, was, I think it was really yellow jackets is what it was. And he just poured probably half a gallon of gasoline down into this hole. And of course, it stirred them up. And they came crawling out, but they couldn't do anything because they had been gassed. Now, I thought we were going to light it. I really thought it was like, sweet, sweet. My dad is cool. We didn't light it, but that's like the anointing of God with a demon-possessed person. They come to the prayer line of their own volition, and you lay hands on them, and sometimes I don't even know who's got the demon, and the anointing goes in, and the demon comes up, because don't, demons don't want that anointing. They don't want the presence of God. They don't want that thing stirring them up. They don't want, they just want... They want away from it because it torments them. It makes them miserable. The member of the gathering demoniac said, have you come to torment us before the time? A couple years ago, we had a young man, and I was, I was just telling a story about uh, uh, witnessing to a lady at the Panera Bread we used to go to in Knoxville. She had 666 tattooed on her forehead, very demonized lady. And it was fun. We went to this Panera probably every other Sunday. And all the church folks in downtown Knoxville would go there too. And she always sat at the table where you had to come off your food line where the drinks were. She'd sit right there and make all the Christians nervous. It was hysterical. But I thought, you got 666 tattooed on your forehead. I got to talk to you. I mean, you're not going to do anything to me. So I would sit down and talk to her. And uh, I got to know her a little bit. And then the second time I talked to her, she was playing tarot cards. And I commanded her to put them up in Jesus' name. And she did and set them aside. 
And I looked at her and I said, so I'm just repeating the story in the service. I said, I will come back and I will cast this thing out of you. And you know I will. And I'll make a scene and I won't even care about it. I, just, I don't know if I cared about it or not. I just want to talk real big to this demon-possessed lady. So I was just telling that story. And after service, one of, our, one of these young men came up to me. It's been a couple years ago and said, Pastor, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but you were telling that story about commanding that, telling that woman you're going to cast a demon out of her and make it come out. He said, I felt something come up in me and begin to hate you and growl at you. And I said, huh. I said, okay, what kind of sin are you in? He said, uh, I said, fornication. He said, yeah. I said, okay, stop it. Quit fooling around with your girlfriend. And so we prayed with him. It didn't cast it out because this is the kind of thing if he would just yield to God and quit being a pervert because he knew it was wrong. She was leading worship at another church. Hooray. <laughs> it would leave. So I laid hands on him again, didn't get it to manifest, and that's all right. But I said, listen, if you'll just submit to God, resist this thing, it'll leave you. Anyway, so he came back. He didn't get offended. I was proud of him for even coming to me, telling me there's something in me that hates you. So some of you ought to hear that. Well, I don't have a demon. Well, then you just have a horrible heart. <laughs> At least blame the demon. But I was proud of him for coming to me as soon as service is over and saying, this thing rose up in me. It growled at you and it hated you. And then I said, what's your sin? Fornication. You don't condemn that at all. You don't beat that up. You say, all right, well, here's how we're going to fix that. Amen. That's a lot of humility right there. Amen. Amen. Last verse, Romans 1. We may have a separate prayer line for those who stay offended at Pastor Chris. I will put it here. No, I think we'll put it at the baptismal and we'll just hold you down till you repent. <laughs> if you can't handle offense at one guy. I don't know. I got to handle not getting offended at 250 of you. And at any given week, any given day of the week, one of you is biting me, nipping at me. So nobody's more church hurt than the pastor. Nobody's more betrayed than the pastor. Nobody's more hypocritically held to a high standard than the pastor. And you're going to sit there in your petty little religiosity and hold an offense against me? I know how it works because I've been on that side of the pulpit. You hold the one conversation I had with you up here. But that was the 19th conversation I had that day. And besides this church, I have ministry friends all over the world, pastors here in town. I have my own family to deal with. I have the chaplaincy now I deal with and the police that I am part of now in this fledgling chaplaincy. And at the same time, the selfishness and the pettiness of a sheep being offended at their pastor over something said in one service. Man, I hope you're ashamed of yourself because I sure am. Why would you get offended? You're not that important. I did not aim to hurt you. If I wanted to hurt you, I could run you out of my church without even trying. So don't listen to that demon telling you. That's a lack of maturity on your part. 
trying to separate you from your shepherd. I live for you. I wish you would return the favor. And I don't get to stay offended at you. So you don't get to stay offended at me. Just repent before you get a demon. Romans 1, last verse. Verse 9, Paul writing, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now, what's, what's he praying for? Verse 10, Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. So Paul's ne- at the point of this writing, about AD 60, Paul's never been to Rome. But his teachings and his doctrine has made it there. There's a church in Rome. He's never made it there. He wants to make it there. He does eventually make it there. And he's praying that God would give him a prosperous journey. He was often in the habit of asking that people would pray that my God would deliver me to you. And so when we have a lot of invitations to missionaries around the world or churches around the world, I always tell them, pray that God would bring me to you. Because if God, if you'll pray, God will send me. There's a lot of places I'd love to go, but I don't get to go just because I want to go there. So I tell folks, if you want me to come, whether it's Europe or Africa, because those are my two only major places, only places, I say, ask God to send me because God will speak to me and I'll happily come. He'll bring me to you. And I like that better than getting somewhere in New York and the Lord saying, I didn't tell you to go and then having to come back. That's a horrible place to be. Paul's doing the same thing here. It's where we learn to do it. Verse 11, why does Paul want to see the Romans? And this is what's critical. For I long to see you not stream you, see you. And that's critical to what he's about to say. That I I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end you may be established. There are only, there are some impartations that can only be caught in person. If you weren't there, you just don't get it. And I understand God will have mercy on a stream. But we've all streamed enough to know it's not the same. It will never be the same. Let me also help some of you. <laughs> There's a psychological condition called dissociation. Let me help some that are dissociated. I won't even look. I'll look at Nick because he's still licking his wounds from. <laughs> I was looking at him on the front row. I don't know if you know this. The anointing is stronger at the altar during worship. It's incrementally stronger. I don't know why in the world you would stand in the back. I really don't know. I don't know why you would just stay in the back when the presence of God is so much stronger down here. Now, if you, well, I know that. If you know it's stronger down here, why do you stay in the back? Now, I get it if you're working security or you're an usher and that's your post. Get it. Totally get it. But if you, being the guru, know so much, well, I want to make room for others. You're a moron. That's a lame excuse. Why not be down front during worship? Are you averse to the anointing? You don't to make you uncomfortable? Are you afraid it's going to expose something? Are you afraid the Lord might speak to you? Why would you not be down front? Why would you not be like the one with the issue of blood and press in? Why would you not? Paul said, I want to be with you so I can do some greater imparting that you might be established. The word established just means strengthened, to be made firm. Obviously, there was something that could not be accomplished without him in person. 
So the anointing is always better in a service than it is streaming, and it's always better down front than it is in the back. Every service I've ever been in is that way. You can be in the back of the church and as a guest and go down front for the altar call, and you walk down, and about halfway down, you go, whoa, this would have been a totally different service if I sat closer. I don't even know why they make back rows in churches. Wait, I do. It's for a certain class of Christians. If we have open chairs down front, I don't know why you don't fill them. I really don't. But maybe that's between you and your God. Paul said, I want to come and lay hands on you. I want to impart unto you some spiritual gift, some pneumaticos, some spiritual charisma, grace deposit. There's, there's, here's our, four, our whatever fifth and final element of the anointing is that we can lay hands on people and the power of God comes upon them not to heal them, not to break a yoke, not to resurrect them, not to make them prophesy, but to deposit something in them they have need of. We've done it for business leaders. That's a, that's a grace they need. We've done it for missionaries. That's a grace they need. Anytime the scudders are here, I lay hands on them to impart whatever they need for the next round of ministry. Uh, a lot of our guest ministers, I usually get permission for me to lay hands on them. If they're older, I usually ask them in private because I'm a younger guy and there is a little bit of a protocol there and I don't want to assume I've got something an older man needs. Sometimes they ask me, I want you to lay hands on me. You got something I need, so we'll do that. Uh, and that's how the kingdom works. There's an anointing that equips. And, but see, that's the presence of God. It has everything you need whether it's healing or yoke destruction or wisdom or driving out a demon. It's life. It's pure life. It gives you whatever you have need of. And we ought to be gluttons for the presence of God. We, we ought to be little piggies, just wanting more of that presence of God. So here in a minute, when we lay hands on people, uh, I want you to be setting your faith that this is what you're praying for. This is what you're believing God for. There is a spirit of wisdom that can come upon you that you, you need to know clarity. You need to have vision. Maybe you're struggling with oppression or discouragement or depression. The anointing of God will pour in the oil of gladness. Uh, it, it really is whatever you have need of. And if you're a human being, there's always something you have need of. And there's always something the power of God wants to do for you. Because he's a father. And no matter where your kids are at, you always want to do something for them. Sometimes they don't even know what it is, but you do it for them anyway. We want to make sure, though, that we're happy to be in the presence of God.